Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and glad you've got a little time to share with me today. So we've got pirates on the menu, and and who doesn't like a good pirate story or two? I'm here today with Richard Zacks, best-selling author of many books, including The Pirate Coast, History Laid Bare, Chasing the Last Laugh, and one of my favorite books of all time, Island of Vice, the story of Teddy Roosevelt's tenure as police commissioner in 1890s New York. However, that is not our topic today. Our episode today is about his fascinating book, Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd, one of the most infamous men in American history. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. That's great. It's good. So what inspired you to write a book about Captain William Kidd? I think that the most uh, compelling part of the story was that everyone gets it so wrong. I mean, at the time, they're starting to get it right. It's been 10 years, but but they got it so wrong. And I was fascinated with uh, kind of cleaning up the myth and getting to the true story. And I spent almost four years in the record. So it was uh, the story kept changing and I think getting better. It almost plays out like a novel. You couldn't ask for better twists and turns. Absolutely. So from early on, most of us develop this stereotype of pirates in our head. You write in your book that you had that same stereotype. Peg legs, parrots, eye patches, lots of R's. Uh, where does this come from? And how do these stereotypes separate from historical fact? Well, I think a lot of them, um, you know, came from the, the early movies and the uh, Captain Bloods and Errol Flynn and all the rest of it. And there are some historical facts in there. I mean, not all the pirate details are wrong. I mean, uh, you know, guys did get maimed. There were the occasional peg legs and eye patches. Um, they did actually wear the clothes of a lot of the aristocrats that they stole from. So they were 
dressed pretty bizarrely sometimes. They certainly cursed more than your average person. I mean, some of the details are correct, but uh, in Captain Kidd's case, it's just such a travesty. He was a privateer. He was one of the most respected citizens in New York City, and he was hired to chase pirates. So that's what really intrigued me about the story, and then he gets accused of being one, and there's a whole suspense drama. You know, maybe he did turn pirate. Maybe he didn't. I wanted to find out. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that too, just for listeners who may not be aware of the, of the differences. What is a privateer and what is a pirate? Sure, it's incredibly important to understand the difference. I mean, a, a privateer was a very respected uh, profession back in that era in the late 1600s. Basically, they were nautical mercenaries who were hired by the king or queen to act as Royal Navy ships, in effect, to go and ca capture enemy ships. And these were private ventures. So wealthy lords would back a, a given privateer who would get a commission from the king. And whatever they captured, a French merchant ship, say, or Spanish silver ships, a percentage would go to the king, a percentage would go to the backers, a percentage would go to the captain and the crews. Privateering was respected, and it, it supplemented the Royal Navies. On the other hand, pirates were just ragtag independent thieves who stole from ships of all nations. They were called enemies of mankind. And it's an incredibly important distinction, whether it, someone had a commission from the government or whether someone was a freelancer. So what do we know about William Kidd's early life? How, how did he make his mark as a sea captain? Uh, it's interesting. Um, first off, everyone got his birth date wrong, which was really fun. I got a Scottish historian working with me, and we corrected that. I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's fun for a scholar. We He had always been listed as uh, 1645 in Greenock, Scotland, and it's actually 1654 in Dundee. So he was born in Scotland, which, you know, there's no United States of America at this point. So he's born in Scotland, part of the British Empire, and uh, he winds up serving in the Caribbean, on a Royal Navy ship, and he's he's loyal, and he's a, a loyal member, you know, of the British Empire, and uh, at at a point of war against the French, he gets commissioned as a privateer, and he names his ship, he steals the ship from the French uh, with a guy named Robert Culliford. They steal the ship, and he renames it the Blessed William, and I think it's a little bit to King William, but it's also to William Kidd. You know, he was, he was an arrogant, tough guy. There's no doubt about it. He didn't you know, he was not your friendly, cuddly man. And uh, so he's he's Captain William Kidd, and he's a privateer fighting the French down in the uh, 1690s in the Caribbean. What did William Kidd look like? That's a good question, because the Howard, Howard Pyle was the most famous illustrator, probably, of pirates. And uh, <laughs> he has a Captain Kidd that looks like some sort of swarthy villain with a, you know, a kerchief, you know, bandana and, you know, the whole thing. I think he's smoking or drinking or doing both. And that's just not right. We have one authentic uh, portrait of Kidd, and, and he looks a little like a nobleman of that era, you know, long hair, sort of forceful, uh, you know, brow and stern eyes. And uh, he would have looked to you like an, another you know, maybe a minor aristocrat or a, or a tough, you know, a sea captain, sea captain who had put on airs, wanted to be an aristocrat, something like that. He marries a woman named Sarah. Is that right? Right. Absolutely. She was the one of the wealthiest widows in New York City. So you can see how respectable kid was at the time. He is this dashing sea captain and she's, 
she's buried two husbands and she's by all accounts attractive and uh, she's quite wealthy. They own, in fact, the plots of land if they'd stayed in the family. Uh, they own something like 40 acres up around what would be the East 70s in the river in New York City. They own they own property on Pearl Street. They they owned actually a Wall Street building that Donald Trump uh, either owns or manages for a while. So he married into a really wealthy family. He didn't really need to work anymore if he didn't want to, but he wanted to be a privateer. He even wanted to be a Royal Navy captain. I know you mentioned this before, but but again, he's considered an American pirate. But but this is a, a hundred years before America gets its independence. Correct. I mean, we do call him an American pirate, and and we think of Captain Kidd and Blackbeard are probably the two two most notorious names uh, out there in in among American pirates. But you know, it is before the United States, and it's um it's it's the British Empire, and Kidd was down in the Caribbean, which had British islands, obviously, and then. He's up in New York, which is one of the colonies. Your story starts off with William Kidd being cajoled by a group of English lords to capture pirates in the Indian Ocean and then split the loot. Could you talk more about this relationship and the bargain they strike? Uh, sure. He. It was a pretty unusual privateering arrangement. Part of it was totally standard boilerplate. He would uh, be a privateer against the French in times of war. That was standard. Uh, you dime a dozen privateering contracts. But what was unusual here was he also got a uh, privateering contract uh, to capture pirate ships. And, yes, the Indian Ocean was the specific area. And the the reason was the English East India Company was uh, losing some of its uh, prowess, business, respect, because English pirates were capturing ships out there. And, you know, as maybe your listeners know, the English East India Company would eventually take over India and is arguably the most successful semi-private enterprise in the history of business. So this was, in theory, Kidd was going to go out there and capture, you know, British pirates and help the English East India Company. But there really was... Uh, more of a deviousness behind it. Four of the lords who backed him had been uh, squeezed out of the East India Company and were not making money there. So this was a way that they too could profit from the Indies. And Kidd was able to negotiate the terms a little. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say they were great, actually. Um, he tried to bargain, but but on paper, he was supposed to give, uh, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but it, at least 50% was supposed to go back you know, to the lords. And, and um, you know, th- these these men that he was hiring, they were used to a bigger share. You know, this was not the greatest share. This was a pretty unusual, I think even 75% was going back to the lords. So he didn't really strike the greatest bargain. But, you know, I think he knew, like, I'm not saying he was the most, you know, squeaky clean man ever. I think he knew when you're out on the high seas, you could sell some of the, some of the treasure, some of the booty a little early, and nobody would care. If privateering missions sometimes returned a hundred to one on the investment, which is just unthinkable. I mean, if you get 10 to one as an investor, you're you're the happiest man around. 100 to one's extraordinary. So they were all going to make a lot of money if he captured a few ships. How did Captain Kidd prepare for his voyage? How did he hire his crew and get things ready? Well, that, that's really uh, interesting, too. He, he got the ship built, a custom-built ship. That's how powerful and wealthy his backers were. Normally, you just you bought a merchant ship, you added a couple extra cannons to it, and off you went. Kidd uh, was really thoughtful about this, and he wanted to have a galley, which was unusual. He wanted to have oars. 
so that if another ship was was becalmed and there was no wind, he could literally have his men row over, and that gave them an extra uh, weapon. The trouble was that most of your average sailors didn't want to be galley slaves. They didn't want to be um, rowing, but, you know, it wasn't going to come up all the time. So he he, cussed, he really thought about this ship. He put 30 guns on it. Um, this was a powerful ship. He called it the Adventure, so Captain Kidd sailing on the Adventure galley. And um, he needed a crew, and that was always a problem in that era. There was a shortage of sa- of sailors, and um, the Royal Navy was notorious for its press gangs. It would literally get people drunk in bars, knock them over the head, and they'd wake up the next morning having signed something, and they were on a ship and couldn't get off. And if they, you know, showed any disrespect, they were flogged. So it was very tight labor market. So kid had a had a very limited crew that he sailed out of London with, and then he wanted to fill out his crew in New York. And like I said, he didn't have the greatest contract for uh, the split. So it was going to be a little hard. So some people think he whispered to the men that, that he would take care of them, that he would do better. But kid comes into New York. It's a place we don't think of New York this way, but the, the skyline was two windmills and a church steeple. I mean, it's a very population 5000, a very different. They'd had a whipping post where they whipped the slaves. Very, very different place. Kid comes in there and he fills out his crew. And he actually knows that several of the men, at least a couple dozen, have been pirates before. But that's what the labor market was. He needed a crew. So he's hiring former pirates to go chase pirates. <laughs> at one point, while the ship is passing, uh, I believe it's a, a British naval post or something, Captain Kidd refuses to salute. Right. To, to pay his respects. Well, it's just that Kidd Kid had a huge ego. He was an arrogant man, and he thought, here I am dealing with four of the most powerful lords in London, and I'm on a, a privateering mission. He he doesn't get to fly the Union Jack. He flies what's called a privateering jack, which has a little red, and then it has the Union Jack. And it's, uh, you know, it's to him, he is of equal rank to the uh, to the Royal Navy captains. But, of course, the Royal Navy captains don't look at it that way. So before Kidd even leaves... He's already irritated the Royal Navy, which is not really a good thing to do when you're on a mission like that. So what was the journey like for the crew of the Adventure Galley? What was life like on the ship? How did how does a ship like this operate so far from home? Well, first he had a sailover with the like what I call a skeletal crew. Um, you know, it, it's not a, I mean, it's hard. I'm not taking anything away from it. But a lot of merchant ships had a crew of 10 or 15 men. I mean, once... You know, the sails were in place. Uh, the wind did a lot of it. I'm not saying it was an easy life at all. They worked incredibly hard. Um, in fact, what, what I found interesting is they basically were allowed to drink a uh, gallon of beer a day for as long as the uh, the initial beer lasted after they left port. You know, it was a tough life. You're climbing up, you know, the rat lines to get to the sails. You're dropping sails. I mean, accidents happen. Um I saw one one study that claimed that three, and I, this might be too extreme, but three out of four British royal sailors did not survive a two-year cruise, either from accidents, scurvy, various other uh, risks, you know, shipwreck, uh, attack. Uh, it was an incredibly rough life, and these were rough men, and most of them were uned- couldn't write or uneducated and uh, would, would drink, you know, anything they'd get their hands on, and... Kid, imagine Kid, he's one man on the ship, you know, a few officers around him, but it's not like he's got Royal Navy Marines or anything to protect him. And he has to control this crew. 
And part of the crew, like I said, is former pirates. I mean, it's an incredible premise. The former, you know, Captain Kidd going out with pirates to chase pirates. And then the split that he's supposed to give them when he comes back is not a typical generous split. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. Do I, do I remember right? Do a number of the men die of cholera on the trip? Uh, they, they got some on later, they got some, uh, uh, disease that it wasn't really identified. I don't know if they I, I ever decided it was definitely cholera, but, uh, they, um, before they got too far out on the voyage, he lost 50 men to a disease on some obscure island called Mohelia, you know, so they were already needing crewmen. And then, then, you know, he gets this incredible bad break in a fog. He runs into a small squadron of Royal Navy ships. And he feasts with the, uh, with the Commodore and all is well, but Kid can clearly sense that Captain Warren, Commodore Warren is going to want to take some of his crew because that's what the Royal Navy always does. So Kid sneaks off in a fog and then Captain Warren starts spreading the reports that Kid is a pirate. Why would you, why would you leave, you know, leave the Royal Navy, uh, squadron here? I mean, he just left it because of common sense. He thought his mission was import, as important as Warren's, and he didn't want to give up any crewmen, but he hasn't even really started. He hasn't reached the Indian Ocean yet, and he's really irritated the Royal Navy, and uh, not a good thing. So no good pirate story is complete without a nemesis. And for William Kidd, it was Robert Culliford. I know you've already talked a little bit about Robert Culliford, but could you talk more about his background and offer a few more details on how he and Kidd met? Sure. The two of them were sailors sailing together. They were both uh, young, I'd say, in their 30s in the Caribbean. And uh, and uh, Kidd and Culliford, when wars declared against uh, between England and France, Kidd and Culliford uh, sneak over and capture a French ship out of a harbor. And this is an incredible, you know, this is wonderful for the war effort. And, and they, they bring it to Antigua and, um, kid gets made captain. And, uh, we're, we're not sure if this is his first captaincy, but it might be, uh, or it's at least one of his early ones. And, um, he's made captain and Culliford is part of the crew and the ship's called the Blessed William and they're going to attack French ships. And the only problem is that Culliford wants to be a pirate. He doesn't want to be a privateer uh, in the war effort. So Culliford and a bunch of other rogues go and steal the ship out from under Kid. It's deeply embarrassing. He loses his own ship. And so Kid survives. Kid gets more commands. Kid becomes a successful privateer. Kid marries the wealth, one of the wealthiest widows in New York. And now he's on this mission. And of all the pirates that he has to capture, one of the most notorious ones on the list is Robert Culliford. And Culliford's out there in the Indian Ocean acting as a pirate. It sounds like the plot of a movie, you know? <laughs> well, you're breaking my heart. It's been optioned so many times. And Nick Cassavetes, um, uh, who's wonderful and who was in uh, you know, Entourage and made uh, Alpha Dog and all that, he... he Gave a very generous option for two years, but we just couldn't get the movie made, you know. So, anyhow. That's that's really too bad. So, the Adventure Galley made its way to the Cape of Good Hope. What luck did Kid have finding pirates on the wide open sea? And was he eager to engage? I would say he was very eager to engage them, but he did not have much luck. He, he, he sailed and they, they didn't run into any pirate ships. They didn't run into any French ships. The only thing he had taken so far was a little French 
fishing boat, basically, uh, on his voyage from London to New York. And that actually was worth, I forget, 400 pounds or something like that, which was a lot of money back then. Um, so that helped pay for some things. But he, he had absolutely no luck. So they went to the place where the ships came down uh, and the Red, called the Red Sea, you know, where, you know, the trade coming basically from Persia down to India, which are these incredibly rich ships full of gold and jewels and silks. And uh, Kid wasn't supposed to capture those ships, but it, it was kind of a technicality. If a pirate captured a ship first, then Kid could capture the pirate. And then they, the courts could decide, in theory, you know, who should get the the, the goods back. Anyhow, that's where, that's where it was. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Talk a little more, if you would, about Kidd's relationship with his crew. It doesn't get any better as the journey progresses, does it? No, it gets worse. And um, they saw, for instance, a Dutch ship. And the crew, with you know two dozen former pirates at least aboard, they want to attack the Dutch ship because, you know, and Kid says, because we are poor, we should, we should become rogues or something like that. 
he's trying to keep to his mission because he knows that they will eventually find a pirate ship and this will work out well for all of them. And the crew keeps getting more and more restless. And the leader of the sort of the gang that wants to pretty much mutiny is the gunner, William Moore. And he's, uh, you know, gunners are very important. I mean, it's complicated to, to load the powder and load the, you know, the rest of it and the, the touch hole and the cannonball and the whole rest of it and the carriage. And uh, so he's the gunner. He's in charge of all of that. So he's a very, he's a powerful guy on the ship. And he, he's sharpening a chisel sitting on deck. And, um, he wants them to, to, uh, attack. And, um, kid doesn't want to. And, um, kid calls him a loud, we have this dialogue from the trial. Kid says, you are a lousy dog. And, uh, Gunner Moore responds, you have made me one. And kid takes a iron hooped bucket. Basically, some people say it's leather, some people's wood with iron hoops on it. And he just swings it and it catches more flush in the temple. And Moore dies the following day. And so the question is, was Captain Kidd preventing a mutiny? I mean, there was, I mean, he could have had more flogged. He could have, he could have had more clapped in irons. He could have done almost anything to him. And was this an intentional murder? And this, this would later become very important because when they're trying to put charges on the notorious pirate Captain Kidd, one of them will be premeditated murder by bucket. That's one of the interesting aspects of the story you tell. There, there are conflicting reports of his personality. Some say he was just and fair, and others, especially the ones who'd parted ways with him on the voyage, for various reasons we'll get to, uh, let me put it kindly, didn't consider him the kindest man in the world. Yeah, he's certainly not the kindest man in the world. But I mean, if you think about it, sleeping al- alone in your captain's cabin with, with 100 you know, the it, the voyage is basically called the slang expression was no prey, no pay. These guys didn't get wages. When you're on a privateer ship, you got your percentage. And think about it. If you're a mercenary and you see like a rich, you know, gold shipment of gold going by, but it's gold that belongs to a country you're not fighting against. I mean, the mercenaries are going to really, especially in the middle of the ocean where you can sink the ship and sink the evidence. The mercenaries are going to want to attack. And kid has to keep order among all of them. So no, he's not the nicest guy and he definitely has a sharp tongue. He's literate. He can write and read. And, uh, you know, he was a tough captain and you certainly had to be to keep control of a crew like that. So fortunes changed for kid when he took the ship. Uh, and I don't want to massacre this word. It, it sounds like an Indian word. The Quidoc merchant. Uh, the Kida merchant is how the people usually pronounce it. Kida. Okay. So what were the circumstances of the ship's capture? What was the reward and what were the consequences? Well, the Kita Merchant was a magnificent ship. I mean, it was a 400-ton ship carrying an extraordinary crew of valuable goods, um, basically uh, Armenian merchants in charge. And uh, it's coming back with just bales upon bales of expensive silk. It has gold and diamonds, might even have opium on board uh it's this amazing ship and and kid does what we call a ruse de guerre he uh he flies a uh a, a french flag that's you know is look it's accepted in times of war to trade it's like when the when the police officer says your partner confessed already you better save your own skin you know and then the, the person tells the whole story and then it turns out the partner didn't confess so um this is this is similar. Flying a red, uh, sorry, a French flag, and the other ship, the the Kita Merchant, 
you know, pulls the French flag and flies it. And um, Kid talks to the captain, and um, they exchange the documents. They call them passports. These were the documents under which a ship sailed. Like we, we talked today about a ship being registered in Liberia or the Bahamas or something. So th this ship was sailing under a French passport, and Kid says, I have captured you. He, he, he had, Kid had sent over someone who could speak French, and once the, the guy had gotten the passport from him, he basically says, I've captured you. And so technically, according to Kid's privateering commission, this was a legal capture uh, within the dates that he was allowed. And it was an incredible moment for them. They were all going to become rich, you know, taking this ship. Now, was this a really a French ship? I mean, how do you define that? And, and was this a pirate ship? No. Kita Merchant was not a pirate ship. But there are ultimately consequences for taking the ship. The, the British government views him far differently after this capture, right? Right. It's terrible uh, for him on some level because this, some of the goods were going to the um, some of the, the most powerful men in India who the British you know, East India Company was trying to make trade deals with. And so, you know, the Grand Mogul and the rest of it, and, and um, it was probably one of the worst ships he could have captured for that reason. So, so now the English East India Company uh, desperately wants nothing to do with them because he's in, they call him the English pirate. You know, they, um, the Grand Mogul is convinced this man's just an English pirate who's stolen. I mean, he doesn't care about the technicalities of that French pass that was being, the, 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 you know, in fairness, the guy might have been carrying passes from France and Portugal and Spain and Britain, and he might have had four passes on, but he handed over the French pass. So, uh, no, Kid is, so Kid basically has to hightail it back to, uh, basically a pirate outpost, and he claims that he wants to capture more pirate ships down there. It's the perfect place to go. It's a place called Ile Sainte Marie or Saint Mary's Island off the coast of Madagascar. I'd like to ask you about this. In April of 1698, Kid, in reaching Madagascar, finally encounters the pirate Robert Culliford and his ship, the Mocha. Can you talk about this encounter? What happens between them? Well, Culliford has been successful. He's captured uh, the Mocha frigate, which now he has a very powerful ship to use as his pirate ship. And uh, he, ha he too, has, um, you know, amassed some treasure for his pirate crew. But it is a pirate crew. There is no no gray area about it. And and Kid claims he sails he sails into the harbor there, and he orders Kid orders his crew, uh, and he still has a hundred men. Orders his crew to attack the pirate ship. This is perfect. They already have the goods from two ships, the Kita Merchant and another one, the Ruparel, that they've captured, both with French passes, and now they're about to take a pirate ship. This is perfect. And Kid's crew mutinies over to Culliford. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, Kid, Kid had the dialogue at the trial or something like uh, he orders them to shoot, and one guy, one pirate, one man on Kid's crew yells, I'd rather put two balls into you. And another one shouts, Ten balls into you. They clearly, a lot of the crew hated Captain Kidd, and they mutinied over to Culliford. And they took, you know, a lot of the treasure. But Kidd, remarkably, was able to keep a lot of the goods, and especially the, the gold and the silver, the, the smaller amounts of things, uh, separate from the pirates who partied, you know, on the Mocha frigate. And he lost a 100 crewmen. We have the names to this day that mutinied over to Robert Culliford. So how many men does that leave Kid with to return to America? The Blessed William, you know, is, I mean, sorry, the Adventure Galley 
is uh, is really not see- that seaworthy anymore. So they basically have to burn the adventure galley. He has 15 crewmen, including I think five of them are just cabin boys. I mean, this is a ridiculous situation. He has an incredibly valuable treasure. I mean, uh, a fabulous treasure. And it, it, and he has 15 men to protect it, and five are boys. And his ship's too leaky. The adventure galley's too leaky to sail. And um, he basically burns it for parts. And then um, he is going to sail back on the Kita Merchant. So he has a skeleton crew to sail back a 400-ton ship. Uh, with the gold and the silver. He has something like 150 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. And he's going to head back, and he thinks that he's pulled off a miracle, that he's going to deliver to his backers this extraordinary treasure and be hailed as a hero. He eventually learns that people are lying in wait for him, though, including former members of his crew, the ones who left him for Culliford, I believe, and he's forced to make an extra-long journey right? To, to avoid the New York Harbor. He does. Absolutely. He has a decision. He's, he's a little worried if he just sails straight into New York, he doesn't know what his welcome will be. And so he, as a smart man, he hedges his bet. He sails to the Caribbean first and he finds out his, you know, I mean, he had to fear this, his worst, because he knew that he had irritated the Royal Navy and the English East India company. He had to know there was a chance this could happen when he hits Anguilla and sends a small boat ashore incognito, he discovers he's one of the most wanted men in the British Empire. So he has this treasure, he has this ship that he can barely sail because it's way too big for his crew, and he has a major problem. How can he figure out, you know, there are no telephones back then, there's no telegraph. How can he find out if his backer in the Americas, Governor Bellamont, who's the governor of New York uh, and Massachusetts at the time, uh, how can he find out if Lord Bellamont will protect him and uh, what he should do? So kid, kid has a problem. And Bellamont ultimately betrays him. Can you talk about how he lured kid back into his confidence? Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, just before just before getting to that, what kid decides to do? So he's down in the Caribbean and he he basically starts selling some of the treasure to finance his way to get to New York. So he sells a bit of treasure and he buys a boat, the San Antonio, which would just look like a nondescript, relatively small boat, but he's not carrying that much. You know, a number of bales and the, the gold and the silver, you know, fit into chests. Uh, and he has some jewels too, some diamonds and emeralds. And he, he gets this San Antonio. And we have all the records of the merchants that he traded with down there who bought the pirate goods, who gave him more cash. And, uh, kid sails with his tiny crew up to New York. And Kid again is cunning. He he contacts, he he stays out out on the Long Island area, doesn't come into New York Harbor, and he sends a boat ashore to get his lawyer. You know, he lawyers up basically. He gets a guy named James Emmett, who is one of the founders along with Kid of Trinity Church in uh, Manhattan. And Emmett he has Emmett meet him in a pretty out of the way place in Stonington, Connecticut. Uh, so that they can discuss what the best strategy is. And uh, Kid tells his story, and Emmett then goes and meets with Lord Bellamont. And Lord Bellamont is quite devious. He does everything to make Kid think that Kid is extraordinarily welcome. He does kind of word the letter, if you read it closely, if your story proves to be as you say, or something like that. But but basically, it's a very welcoming letter. And um, Kid decides he's not totally convinced that Lord Bellamont 
will be on his side. So Kidd does another cunning thing. He hides the bulk of his treasure on Gardner's Island, which is up near the um, eastern tip of Long Island. And um, it's, you know, sparsely populated, and he makes a deal with Gardner, the, the owner. And so he hides the bulk of his treasure there, and he hides a little bit on uh, Canonicut Island, which would become Jamestown, Rhode Island, with a Captain Thomas Payne. He hides hide some pounds of gold there. And then he, he sails up into Boston, and he thinks that this is his sort of get-out-of-jail card, the fact that, that his treasure is hidden elsewhere. Uh, but it, it doesn't quite work out that way. So Kidd is arrested and sent to Stone Prison. What was Stone Prison like for him? Obviously not very pleasant. No, it's cold, it's damp. Um, his kid's wife, Sarah, beautiful widow, former widow Sarah, has come up to be with him. She's brought her family possessions, silver, and uh, she's, you know, wealthy. She uh, she comes up there, and um, Kid is treated as a notorious pirate. You know, at first, he looks like he's going to be able to lead them to the treasure, and this might be his, a chance, his chance to escape. But then Lord Bellamont keeps probing through various nautical officials, people who are in Boston Harbor, people who have had contact with Kid. And he, he actually finds out about the where the uh, the goods are stashed on Gardner's Island. So he's able to send someone to Gardner to get the treasure. So now Kid has absolutely no leverage. And now it's in Bellamont's best interest to turn over the treasure and turn over Kid to the, the other lords who are far more powerful than Lord Bellamont, the other lords back in London. And that's basically what uh, Lord Bellamont wants to do. But then there's a problem that, that there are some members of the House of Commons who want to prove that Kid was a pirate, and they want to disgrace the lords and disgrace the king, and so it, it, he has to wait, keep Kid in prison almost a whole year till House of Commons is back in session because they want Kid to testify. Before this is an enormous scandal. I mean, the King of England is being accused of hiring a pirate to steal from the East Indies, and uh, the lords just cannot allow the story to go that way. They need the story to be they hired a privateer and Kid turned pirate. They need to demonize Kid and hang Kid. That's the, that's their goal. So Kid's caught in the middle of a political tug of war. So eventually, Kid was transported to England to face an interrogation by Parliament, and unbeknownst to him, Tory politicians wanted to use him as a, a political tool. Is that right? Right. They want to disgrace these four lords. I mean, this was the Lord of the Admiralty. This is. These are really four of the most powerful men in England. It's extraordinary that they were the backers. They didn't even sign the document, though. They had, like, their uh, shills. They had, you know, like, the groom the, ho- the groom from the stable signed for one of them. Um, but this was a chance to make 100 to 1. And, and I think in their heart of hearts, the lords hoped that that pirate ship had just captured East India goods right from the British East. These were competitive men, and they were not allowed. East India Company was a very small club of wealthy lords. These lords had been excluded from it, and I think they would have liked nothing better than Kidd to have captured a pirate ship full of East India goods, and and they could have kept them. But, uh, yeah, so Kidd, Kidd is grilled, and he defends himself articulately. Uh, he, he says the two ships I captured were with French passes. You know, I've done nothing wrong, but uh, it still doesn't work out well. And in what is a complete surprise to him, Kidd is suddenly on trial for piracy on the high seas, and the murder of William Moore. Were his attorneys competent defenders? No, they were not competent at all. And he had a 
they were being paid quite a significant sum and 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 they somehow mysteriously disappeared right before his trial too which makes it of course worse and uh they were back then they were supposedly only allowed to advise him in points of law they did it's complicated but they really did not help him with his defense but the heart of his defense are these two uh french letters these two letters of passage that each of the two main ships that captain kid captured were carrying. So his defense completely hinges on that. And Kidd didn't even know that he was going to be charged with the murder. That was a complete surprise. But he's convinced that the letter, French, French letters will, will exonerate him and he won't have a problem. But, uh, when they get to trial and, uh, he, he asks that they, these letters be produced, the, the judge actually tells him that the letters have been lost if they ever existed. And Kidd's just flabbergasted. I mean, those letters have been read in Parliament. Of course they existed. But to the 12 men in the jury, whatever the judge says is is fact. And if they ever existed. I mean, that's the most arrogant line in, in Kidd's trial. So he did not get a fair trial. What arguments did prosecutors use against Kidd? And what was the eventual outcome of the trial? Well, the arguments were pretty straightforward. They got two two of the people who mutinied against Kidd and turned pirate, uh, a guy named Joseph uh, Palmer and a uh, doctor, Robert Bradenham. And it's interesting, Bradenham got captured by um, William Penn's men in Pennsylvania with a huge pirate treasure. And he was facing the noose. He was going to be hanged as a pirate. So he turns crown witness against Kidd. And Kidd is furious because... These were two of the most notorious pirates against him who'd gone over to Culliford and taken pure, you know, illegal booty, impure illegal booty. And they are the witnesses against him. And and he was just he just accused them of, you know, have you been promised your life, you know, to sell sell out mine or to to give away mine? I am the innocent of them all. I've been perjured by wicked people. He, He just can't when he has to look at those two men testifying against him. It's just too much to bear. Uh, but that's they, they had they basically testified they don't know if those French passes existed and uh, they just completely sold him out. Kid really had no chance at all. He, he was doomed from the very start, right? Pretty pretty much. He seemed to have a chance if the French passes were produced and he had no reason to believe, you know, here are these periwig judges with, uh, you know, mouthing polysyllables. Why aren't they going to uh, at least follow? some aspects of the law and deliver the documents. At one point, some young man, like a cabin boy, says, uh, here's a letter that shows, you know, Captain Kidd's honorableness. And, and the, the, the judge says something like, he knows we can't hear anything viva voce or something like that. You know, that it's as though the, the judges are throwing every little trick. I mean, so the letter had to be read aloud. And uh, the cabin boy couldn't know that. And the letter's never read into the court record. I mean, little... It just at every turn, the judges were completely biased against Kidd. And he was a Scot. Scots and Irish, Scot, Scottish and Irish were not thought well of it in that time in the empire. So William Kidd was sentenced to be executed on May 23rd, 1701. How was he killed? He was, he was hanged. He tried to save his life by offering to take a ship and deliver 100,000 pounds of treasure. And I think this is where the rumors of, you know, kids' incredible treasure come from is from that. He sent that letter to Parliament and it was widely known that he was offering to go bring back a huge treasure. Um, but they turned down his offer. They didn't believe there was a treasure. 
And so he's hanged and it's, it's, you know, in whopping and it's on the special dock that's in the Thames because technically court of the Admiralty did not have jurisdiction on land, on dry land. So they have a sort of low tide area that's actually under the Thames water during the day, you know, or during most of the day. But then when the, the Thames goes down, there's the, the shore there. And it's so technically it's within the jurisdiction of the Admiralty and executions back then were huge celebrations. I mean, there were people, you know, sold snacks and pies and, um, you know, rum, you know, beer. It was just a, a big, raucous party. They followed the prisoners. There were four prisoners that day. They followed them in the cart as they're being drawn to execution dock and whopping. And, you know, there'd be a, a minister there. And uh, each of the prisoners was allowed to say his final words. And some of them, people say some of the most pathetic thing would be like, Prisoner's final words, it would go on and on and on when he had nothing more to say, just to extend his life a little bit. And the, the picture of the execution is, is a little different than a lot of, you know, people have seen Wild West, you know, ex- you know, hangings. They basically built a scaffold and they, yeah, they had four ropes hanging down, but they had a platform and they just had some pillars underneath it so that when the time came for the person to be hanged, they could just pull out the little props underneath and the floor would fall down, this whole floor. But back in that day, they didn't have a long drop. They didn't want to have like a six-foot drop that would snap the man's neck and make it over. The drop was maybe a foot or so. And so the the person would slowly strangle to death. And it was just horrible. And they'd pee on themselves. And um, people would be yelling out raucous things. There's an old expression, You'll pee when you can't whistle, you know, about being hanged or doing the sheriff's dance because they kicked out their legs and their arms weren't tied in front of them because a man in losing his life can roll his wrists and pull his hands out. They were trussed at the elbows behind them so you couldn't couldn't free yourself. And the amazing thing is when when they went to hang kid, um, the rope broke the first time. And there was a tradition in English justice about, you know, this is sort of a miracle from God and, and you'll be pardoned. But uh they didn't do that in Kid's case. And they then they had to redo the whole thing and, uh, you know, climb up a little ladder and reattach a new noose. And, and then he was hanged. And his body was taken out to where the Thames flows in at Tilbury Point, And it was covered in tar and hung in chains as a warning to others not to pursue the life of piracy. What were some of the, the difficulties you had in researching this book? It was hard. I went to um, the public record office in London and spent about a month with the original documents. And my breakthrough moment was when I found um, a prisoner's diary aboard Robert Culliford's ship. That was just the coolest moment when I because I knew Culliford and Kidd had crossed paths. I knew about them in the Caribbean and I obviously knew about the mutiny. And I knew that Culliford was in Newgate prison at the time that Kidd was eventually hanged. But I really couldn't flesh out Culliford's career. So he was going to be this stick figure of a, of a villain or, a, you know, of the, the person Kid was chasing. And then I found William Willock's narrative um, of, I think it's 10 or 11 months aboard Culliford's ship. And then I was able to, now I knew the names of all the ships he had captured. I knew where he had sailed. I could describe the ports. Culliford became a real character. And, uh, you know, I, I gave about a quarter or a third of the book over to Robert Culliford because that seemed like the right thing to do. And uh, uh, it was really I love reading those. It, these are handwritten copies, you know, at the public record office, the National Archives in England. And 
they treat you so well and they hand you the original document from 1699 and uh, it's just an amazing experience. And the stuff you wrote about Culliford, it's such a historical gem because nothing was really known about Culliford before your book. Right. Literally, there was a paragraph in something, some ridiculous book called The Pirate's Who's Who that got, I think, every single detail wrong about him. Uh, I mean, I found out he was from East Loo in Cornwall, where they were notorious for pretending that the, um, the, the lighthouse was further ashore so that people would wreck their ships on the reefs. You know, if the lighthouse is at the edge, you know where you are. But if you move the lighthouse in, you think you have, still have safety. And uh, he was from that area, East Lou. And I, I just found out I, it was I mean, he was they were ridiculous. Sometimes they wanted to shred the sails of another ship and they threw the china, literally the cups and saucers that they had captured from some previous ship. They threw them in the cannons to see if that would shred the sails of another ship. They, they snuck up on a ship pre-dawn and Culliford ordered the pirate band to strike up a tune and shock the other ship. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, these were authentic facts in this man's diary. It was wonderful. That's great. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, piratehunter.com still exists, richardzax.com. Um, the book is Pirate Hunter, and I, I'm really proud of it. Time picked it as one of the best nonfiction books of the year that it came out. And... Um, Basically, uh, you know, piratehunter.com. I've done, I've been doing some nonfiction since then, but pirates are pretty close to my heart. I got to admit. Thanks so much. And is there any chance you might join me again this year to talk about Island of Ice? Um, sure. That's another one I've come close to selling movie rights to. I'm the, you know, Mr. Close Call on this stuff. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I love 1890s New York. Thanks again. Thanks. And you can purchase Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd by Richard Zacks on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any fine bookstore near you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.